all right, well, as always, it's great to see all of you. Uh, if you are new with us this morning, uh, we have been going through the Gospel of John as a church family. We've been doing that verse by verse for the better part of this year, and today we are wrapping up chapter 7. And so if you have a Bible, I hope you do, let me invite you to open it up with me uh, to the Gospel of John chapter 7. John chapter 7. You know, uh, some questions in life, some questions in life are the kinds of questions that we, we like. They're almost fun to answer. Things like, hey, it's the holiday weekend. Should we go to the mountains or should we go to the ocean? Do you want chocolate cake or vanilla cake? Yes. Uh, do you want the steak or the lobster? Right? And if these are the types of questions that you are facing in your day, you're having a pretty good day, right? But there are other questions in life that are much more challenging and they're more significant. Uh, where should I go to school? Uh, what should I major in? Where am I going to work? Is he or she the one? Uh, should I have that uncomfortable meeting with that person that I have conflict with? Questions like, who am I? What's life about? Or how about this? Am I prepared to die? The question facing the crowd in John chapter 7 this day is, what do we do with this person, Jesus? What do we do with Jesus? And I would submit to you this morning that this is life's most important question. In fact, how you answer that question, what will I do with Jesus, impacts every single area of your life. Listen, it will shape your identity, it will influence your choice of community, and it will define your purpose. John chapter 7 is a chapter that's full of many questions, and they're all surrounding this one issue. Who is this Jesus? What do we do with him? Can this Jesus actually be the Savior? They want to know. And today, we're going to see Jesus give them more insight into that in truly spectacular fashion. J.C. Ryle, an old scholar of the Bible, once wrote about the verses that we're studying today. He once said this. He said, It has been said that there are some passages in Scripture which deserve to be printed in letters of gold. This is one of them. This indeed is a marvelous text as Jesus himself is inviting you, inviting me to come and drink, to come to him and be satisfied. And so with that ahead of us this morning, uh, some words that deserve to be printed in gold, uh, that's what we have for us today. I can't wait. Um, I have just two points for us today. Um, and if you've been here and you know me, that means I'm taking it easy on you today. Two points uh, for us today. We're going to consider, first of all, Jesus' invitation. We're going to explore that a bit. And then we're going to look at the crowd's mixed reaction to this invitation. Just those two things this morning. So here we go. Starting with the Savior's invitation. The Savior's invitation. Our text today begins again like this. On the last day of the feast, the great day. And we pause. We are reminded here once again, as we have been a few times in this wonderful chapter of Scripture, that these events before us are taking place during what's called the Feast of Tabernacles, or other, otherwise known as the Feast of Booths. 
That's the setting for John chapter 7, John chapter 8, and John chapter 9. But now we are told that it's the last day of this great festival, which is very significant. We're going to see why. Here's what's going on. It's the seventh or the eighth day of this festival, depending on which calendar you're looking at. And as they were instructed, the Jewish people, by the thousands, have come into the temple carrying branches. There'd be a tree branch in one hand, reflecting the time when they lived in tents after the exodus. That's what that signified. And then in the other hand, they would be carrying in a citrus branch. That would be celebrating the harvest, celebrating God's provision. And then what they would do, they would take those, as I said, those branches into the temple, bring them to the main altar that was in the center of the temple, and they would create this sort of makeshift covering over that altar, thousands by the thousands. And so you can kind of picture the scene, all these people surrounding the altar, And once that was complete, what would happen is the high priest of that time would go to the pool of Siloam. And with a golden pitcher of his hand, he would dip that pitcher into the pool. And then he would start to make a trek back to the temple with this water. He would come back into the temple. And as soon as he entered into the temple and the people saw him, they would recite Isaiah 12, chapter 3, which says this. Over and over again, they would say this. With joy, we shall draw water out of the wells of salvation. Again and again, as he's walking in the temple. With joy shall we draw water out of the wells of salvation. And then the high priest would take that golden pitcher, filled with that water, he would bring it to the temple... And he would begin to slowly pour that water over the top of the altar. And what this was about on this last day of the festival was remembering God's provision of water for the Israelites in the wilderness. It was a symbol of God's rescue, a sign of his ongoing salvation. It was a time to come together to worship his deliverance, God's deliverance, worshiping God and celebrating the reality that we worship a saving God. And and with that heart, as the water is being poured out, then the people would begin to sing. And they would sing the hallelujah psalms, which if you know what they are, it's between Psalm 113 and Psalm 118. They would just recite these and they're singing and and they're praising. It's This incredibly joyous time marked by this very impactful ceremony. So you have this scene on our minds as we enter into today. And get this. It's on this day, likely when the priest is coming into the temple with that pitcher of water in his hand, or as that water is being poured out, that Jesus does the unthinkable. It's incredible. Look at the text. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So get this. Jesus steps into this powerful and dramatic moment, and he turns the people's attention to himself. 
this ceremony is all about God. It has nothing to do with the people. It's about God for God, about his deliverance, his salvation. And Jesus, in that moment, says, come to me. And by the way, we see here in the text that Jesus is actually making a scene here. Because notice, John uses the language that he cried out. It literally means that he yelled at the top of his voice. He wants to be heard. He's not doing this in secret. This isn't a private teaching moment. He wants the attention and focus of the moment to be on him. He says, you've all gathered together to give thanks for the water in the wilderness, the water that satisfied the thirst of your ancestors. But now I tell you, come to me for the water that quenches your soul. It's so powerful. Jesus is shouting, literally shouting these words to the crowd. And today, he is shouting these words to us. Because there is nothing more important than the invitation he is giving here. Nothing more significant. And so let's just break down this invitation for a little bit. It's worth our time this morning. First of all, I'm going to look at three aspects of the invitation. First of all, who is Jesus actually inviting here in the text? This great invitation, who is he inviting? Well, on one level, it's quite simple, isn't it? The answer is everyone. (laughs) Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. So we see here, in a sense, this is a universal invitation to the Jew, to the Greek, To the Hindu, the Buddhist, the Muslim, to Americans, to Koreans, to Spanish speakers, he says, come. This is the great invitation. And I want us to consider this for a moment. I want us to think about this just for a second. What kind of invitation would you like to receive today? If I could offer you any type of invitation, what would it be? What would get you excited this morning? What would get you out of bed? Like, what if someone offered you this invitation, an all-expenses-paid trip to Paris, right? Would that interest you, right? Or if someone said, hey, I want to invite you to come with me to a, uh, sit at a luxury box to watch your favorite team play. Right? Look, I'm sure, I'm sure there are certain invitations that you would love to hear this morning, but there is no invitation like this one. Jesus Christ himself saying to us, come, Everyone is invited. Now, that being said, on another level, you'll notice that this invitation is quite specific, isn't it? Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me. So hear me now, right? This is the gospel message. The gospel is for those who are thirsty. It means that the gospel is for those who are desperate. It's for the unsatisfied. It's for the unfulfilled. It's for the needy. Other places in the scripture, we see Jesus speaks of those who are weary, of those who are poor. He's talking about the soul. To be thirsty means to have this inward longing for hope, for peace, for forgiveness, ultimately for deliverance, for salvation. Jesus says, anyone whose soul is parched, Thirsty, come. 
That's where it all starts. It starts with this type of craving, which means, which means, don't miss this, that if you are thirsty, that's actually a gift. Right? To know that you're thirsty is actually a really good thing. Listen, if you physically didn't know that you were thirsty, you would die of dehydration, right? I'm glad that I know what I'm thirsty. I'm thirsty right now, by the way, but my water's there, right? I'm glad that I know what I'm thirsty so that I can drink. Your thirst is a good thing, and this thirst spiritually is a realization that nothing in this life will satisfy the deepest longings and cravings of our hearts. Do you understand that this morning? It's knowing that you are empty, which is why when we share Jesus with others, we can't just say to the lost and broken world, hey, you, come to Jesus. Actually, you can't start there. You have to start with, are you thirsty? Let me tell you, you are thirsty. (laughs) And then we say to those, come, come. Which are the instructions of this great invitation? Who's invited? The thirsty. What are the instructions for to the thirsty? It's, again, simple. Go to Jesus. Go to Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come. It's simple. Jesus doesn't say, if you're thirsty, sign a doctrinal covenant. He doesn't say that. Or if you're thirsty, go to a church service. No, the invitation begins with Jesus himself. You go to a person because it's Jesus and Jesus alone who saves. And let's understand as well that to go after or to come to Jesus here means seeing him as the only source of salvation. It means with all of your heart, with all of your will, with all your, all your might, you turn to him. That if he were here as a person, in person, I should say, if he were here, you'd run to him with your feet. You would sprint to him. But because we know he's not here physically with us, now we do that with our hearts. We do that with our minds. We do that with our strength, right, our souls. We go to Jesus, and then he says, when you do that, there's something else. You must drink. We taste and see that he is good. Look, finding an oasis in the desert doesn't actually do you any good unless you drink from it. And likewise, finding Jesus means nothing unless you actually take him, receive him, make him your own, and embrace him. We come to Jesus And we drink, which ultimately means we believe in him. And of course, when you drink something, when we drink something, we know it becomes a part of you. Or it has an impact on you, right? Thank you, David. Brought me water. When you drink something, we know it becomes a part of you. It has impact on you, right? You, You wake up groggy in the morning. This is a lot of us, including me. And what do we do? We run to coffee, right? (laughs) That's what we do. And what happens? It has an impact on you. Or maybe it doesn't, so you drink two. You have a hard workout. 
right? And then after you finish that workout, you listen to your instructor, and so what do you do? You throw down a protein shake, right? Or old school, you drink a Gatorade, right? You do that to replenish you, right? Because it has an actual effect on you. And when you drink, when you drink in, take in the grace of God, it impacts you. When you go to Jesus and drink, you are changed. You are transformed from the inside out. So this is the great invitation of John chapter 7. Go to Jesus. Whoever thirsts, go to him and drink. Believe in him. And if you do that, what happens? What happens if you do that, if you take that step, if you drink from his salvation? Well, look at what Jesus says. It actually comes with a blessing. There's a great benefit to doing this. It comes with a promise. This is verse 38. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying that for those who go to him, for those who believe and drink in deeply his grace, his mercy, his forgiveness, his salvation, that life, he says, that life, that water that flows to you when you come to Christ doesn't, does not just stay in you. It actually goes through you. Hear me. When you drink, this is a fact, when you drink and experience this salvation, this joy and love and peace that only Jesus can give, there is personal satisfaction, absolutely. But along with that, you also become a blessing. When you drink, you will be satisfied. Again, you will experience a joy and a peace that you cannot find in anyone or anyone else. But that blessing isn't ultimately just about you. The blessing that you receive by drinking by coming to Jesus, by trusting him, by loving him, by worshiping him, out of that now content and satisfied, fulfilled heart will flow rivers of living water, he says. They will flow in you and then from you. That's the message. You see, when you truly come to Jesus, listen, when you truly, truly come to Jesus, you're not a stagnant pond that's just receiving. You're not a bucket. <laughs> Get this, you're a fountain, right? You're a life-giving river, Jesus says. Or maybe I could just say it this way. Christ-centered, spirit-filled people are also life-giving people every single time. Right? That's what I want to be. That's what I want us to be as a spirit-filled people, right? These people live to bless others. They don't live to receive. They live to bless. And interestingly enough, there is actually blessing that comes from being a blessing. I love how God works that way. He's like, I want you to give, right? But then there's blessing that comes from being a blessing. This is a biblical principle. We see it in Proverbs chapter 11. It's verse 25. I think we have it on the screen. It says it this way. Solomon, King Solomon, wisest man who ever lived, he writes, whoever brings blessing will be enriched. And look at this. And one who waters will himself be watered. So how do we become refreshed in life? How do we become nourished? 
How do we find joy everlasting? Well, first, of course, you go to Jesus. But also, there's some of us, there's some of us who've been following Jesus and we find ourselves in drought seasons. The answer is water others, <laughs> pour into others, serve others, be a blessing to others. See, again, that's the sign of a spirit filled life. You are nurturing, nurturing people, nourishing people. People are coming to you and they're leaving refreshed. That's a good indicator of you living a spirit-filled life, by the way. Are people coming to you and leaving refreshed? Or are they coming to you and leaving discouraged? The gospel is so beautiful. When you think of the holistic nature of the gospel, you know, Jesus saves us from so much. And one of the things, praise God, one of the things that he saves us from is self-absorption. The gospel frees you from yourself. It frees us from the addiction of ourselves. The Spirit empowers us to be a blessing to the world. The living water flows in you, and then it flows from you. And maybe you're wondering today, well, how does that specifically work? Like you're a practical person. How does that actually work? Maybe you're here today and you're not wondering. I'm going to tell you anyway, okay? <laughs> so we have, we have the picture. Jesus gives us the picture of how this it works. Jesus says we're a fountain. We are a river. We're not a bucket, right? And then Jesus gives us the promise. He tells us how this can happen, but also how this will happen It's verse 39. It says, Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Now, what this is not saying is that the Holy Spirit was absent up until this point. We know that the Holy Spirit is actually mentioned quite a bit in the Old Testament. That being said, we know that after the cross, after the resurrection, after Jesus' ascension... When Jesus is glorified, as he says will happen here, something great and something new took place. We call that Pentecost, okay? This glorious occasion that you can read and see in Acts chapter 2. As the Holy Spirit is poured out upon God's people, this great promise, this great gift, the Holy Spirit, for the first time, comes to indwell and empower those who have recognized that they are thirsty. Comes to fill those who have gone to Jesus and drank drank from the salvation that he offers. The Holy Spirit is poured out on them and they are sealed with the Holy Spirit. Again, for the very first time, this people. Which means we now, here today, those of us who are in Christ... We as the church, we are a community or the community of spirit-filled people. It sets us apart. We are people who are set apart because we are empowered by 
the Holy Spirit. We need to see this. It's too good to miss. In this promise, in this promise, it's not that the Holy Spirit is just among us. It's not like the Old Testament when the Spirit would come into people for a specific time and a specific task. No. Again, for all those who are in Christ, we are indwelled with the Holy Spirit. We are empowered by the Spirit, sealed with the Spirit, so that, so that we can now bear the fruit of the Spirit, so that we can now live our lives on mission, so that we can now be this blessing that we're talking about here. Be a blessing to our neighbors. Be a blessing to the nations. Right? We are now gifted, empowered for this purpose. Amen? As God's people, as followers of Jesus, we have been given the life-giving water of the Holy Spirit. This is the blessing that comes with accepting his great invitation today. This is the invitation. Who is it for? Everyone who's thirsty. How do you receive it? You go to Jesus, you drink. And the benefits or blessings that come with that invitation? The Holy Spirit. So that you can be a blessing to others. Not just blessed, but you can be a blessing. Well now, I want us to quickly consider the crowd's mixed reaction to this invitation. The crowd's mixed reaction to this invitation. Because there's a lot of different ways that we can respond to the invitation, right? There are a few responses you can have to this. And we actually see that on display at this last day of the Feast of Tabernacles. We see four responses, actually. I'm going to break them down for you quickly. First of all, we see the convinced. We see the convinced. Look at verse 40. When they heard these words, Jesus' invitation, come to me, all who are thirsty, drink. When they heard these words, some of the people said, this really is the prophet. Now, we know during that day, at that time, there were actually two concepts that Jewish people had about the prophet who was to come. Some people believed that there would be both a prophet and a Messiah, that there would be two different individuals, actually, who came. But then there were others, those who got it correct, <laughs> others who believed that there would be one person coming who would be both the prophet and the Messiah. They are those who are waiting for this greater Moses, the one that we read about before in Deuteronomy chapter 18. So we're not exactly sure what these people here in John chapter 7 have in mind. Are they thinking, oh, he's the prophet, but we're still waiting for the Messiah? Or are they saying, this is the prophet Messiah? Uh, maybe there's even a mixed reaction amongst the crowd. But at the very least, we do see here that they believe that Jesus was sent from God, and that's a good start. And among that group, look at what others are saying. Verse 41, others said, this is the Christ. In other words, this is the Messiah. This is the Savior. Now again, it's impossible to know if there is genuine confession here, if it lasts, but it at least seems to be maybe these are the people who are part of that little small remnant, that small gathering who we know actually trusted Jesus, believed in Jesus, and, and followed him. But either way, to some extent, we see now that there are people around Jesus who are starting to be convinced, really for the very first time. They believe Jesus is who he is claiming to be, the convinced. But then we see that others are cynical. 
cynical. Back to verse 41. But others, or some said, is the Christ to come from Galilee? We explored this a little bit last week. But we're seeing it again. That there are people who are, they are skeptical of Jesus because of where they believe Jesus is from. They're not even necessarily skeptical of his words. Notice that. How foolish. They're skeptical because they're like, wait, he seems like the Christ, looks like the Christ, talks like the Christ. But he's not from where the Christ is supposed to be from. He can't be who he's claiming to be. Because this guy is from the middle of nowhere. He's from Galilee. And what good comes out of Galilee? Nothing. They say, has not the scripture said that the Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the village where David was? And so again, now we see the issue. This group wrongly assumed that because Jesus was raised in Nazareth, that he was born in Nazareth, but of course he was not. He was born in Bethlehem as the scriptures predicted. He was from the offspring of David, as again was predicted, just as they wanted, just as they expected. So these guys, listen now, these guys are either too lazy to do their homework, or they're just too stubborn and too stuck in their ways to care. And by the way, that's a lot of people that I run into who question Christianity, specifically those who question Jesus. They just do not do their research. They just haven't done their homework. I had someone just this week, ironically, it was very fitting that I got a sermon illustration out of it. I had someone just this week say to me, oh, well, you know, uh, the resurrection, you know, narrative with Jesus, like that's just based on a lot of other resurrection traditions that are from other religions and things. It's like, did you get that from Wikipedia? Where, where, who have you read in any form of legitimate scholarship university who actually really thinks that, right? It's a common teaching that has gone around, similar with the Genesis account. Well, the creation story, like it's just, it's borrowed from other, other, other groups and people. It's like, no, 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 everyone borrowed from us. <laughs> like, do your research, right? I like apologetics. I get angry about it, all right? So <laughs> it's holy anger, all right? So you can see my frustration. You can feel it. But do your research. If you're here questioning Jesus, at least do him the service of actually doing your research. This is what he said. Like, don't be like, well, my, my buddy in college said this. It's like, oh, okay, who's your buddy in college, right? right? He was studying basket weaving, you know what I mean? And he's, uh, he's talking about who is Jesus, right? It doesn't make sense, right? Was he a New Testament scholar? Does he, does he speak Koine Greek? You know, all that matters, right? right? But we're lazy. Listen, Jesus is right in front of them. Or how about this? How about they just ask Jesus, hey, where were you born? They don't do that. Jesus is right in front of them, but they are cynical of him. Listen, based on misinformation about him, they're criticizing the wrong guy, wrong, wrong truths about him. And we see here that these various views of Jesus are actually causing division amongst the people. We are told for a third time now that some people want him to be arrested. And then we see there's a third group. There's the convinced, there's the cynical, and then we see there's the confused. We see this starting in verse 45. That there are some present who just don't really know what to do with Jesus up to this point. John writes this, the officers then came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why did you not bring him? Now, 
officers here, officers, what are that? Not police officers. Okay, these are more like trained Levites, okay, priests in training, who are now, we see, going to the head priests, you know, the trained ones, the ed- most educated ones. They're in front of the Pharisees, the religious elite, and this is what the officers, these trained Levites in training, this is what they hear. The Pharisees and head priests are like, hey, what are you doing here? Why didn't you bring Jesus to us like we asked you to? Why did you come back to us empty-handed? You were given a command. Go arrest him. Seize him. Take him. Bring him to us. They're upset. They have sent these guys off to arrest Jesus, and Jesus is now not with them. I just absolutely love the response. Verse 46, the officers answered, no one ever spoke like this man. It's just fantastic. They're like, have you, listen, we know what you want us to do, but have you heard this guy talk? (laughs) Have you heard him teach? We just don't feel comfortable putting an orange jumpsuit on that guy. And understand, this group here, this is important, right? The context matters here. We have to understand, this group here, they were around teaching all the time. Like, for a living, they were learning to be teachers. And they're telling the greatest teachers, have you heard this guy teach? Something, something about Jesus just made them say, we don't know what to do here. But what we do know is that we don't feel good about the handcuffs. And look at the Pharisees' response. Their hearts, we see, are so calloused. There could be a fifth group. I don't have the calloused, but it fits the C, doesn't it? The calloused. Their hearts are calloused. The Pharisees answered them, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities or the Pharisees believed in him? But this crowd that does not know the law is accursed, they say. So we see here now they are speaking very condescendingly. They are looking down hard on this group, like the students. We're the teachers, you're the student. They're looking down on them. And basically what they're saying is, look, guys, if Jesus was legit, if he is who he says he is, don't you think we would have believed in him? Right? We're the religious experts here. But have any of us believed? Or are any of us even considering him? We haven't. They say, this crowd doesn't know and understand that we're the experts of the law. We're the experts. So stop it. Stop this nonsense. Don't be fooled by Jesus. So we have the convinced. We have the cynical. We have the confused. And then finally, we have the contemplative. Contemplative. I had to stick with the C's. We see this as we close out chapter 7 represented by a a man who should be familiar to us if we know the Gospel of John or you're here for this. Nicodemus, he's back. Nick at night, he's back with us from chapter 3. It says this, Nicodemus, who had gone to him before, there it is, chapter 3, and who was one of them, said to them, pause just for a second to say this. First of all, 
let's understand, even now we see the Pharisees did not get it right. What they said to the officers wasn't true. There were some Pharisees. There were some experts in the law who were considering Jesus, and Nicodemus might have been the leading one. He goes to them and says to them, does our law judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? Now, we see here that Nicodemus is not believing. That's later. But he is bringing up an important point, and it's a procedural, a procedural point. He says, we need to obey our system. We need to follow our law, he says. We need to first hear him out and hear what he's actually teaching, hear what he's actually saying. But look, they are not interested in fairness, are they? And we know this, right? When we're outraged, you don't care about fairness, rightness, justice. They replied to him, look at this. Are you from Galilee too? Search and see that no prophet arises from Galilee. So now they've gone from insulting their students to now they insult another fellow Pharisee. Direct insult. Are you, they're saying, are you also from nowhere? Are you from small town nowhere, just like Jesus? Understand the, the people from Galilee, small town, we know this as well, they also spoke with an accent, okay? Which partly was because or they, they had more trouble with their speech because they weren't as educated, they weren't in the city, which is why in Acts chapter 2, off my notes here, which is why in Acts chapter 2, when the Holy Spirit comes down and the people are speaking in tongues, it actually comes out. Aren't these the Galileans? Like, what, what? They're trying to listen because maybe they were tough to hear and understand at times in general. But like, no, 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 this is something new, right? It's like if you've heard someone from like deep south in America, right? You hear this? Or like, like deep, like I'll go to my roots, Ireland. Like you, they're speaking, you're like, what did you just say? What, what? You've heard this, right? People with thick accent. Maybe they're from Daegu or Busan. I don't know, right? You hear that thick accent, right? What are they saying, right? So they're actually saying, they're criticizing him. Are you from Galilee too? Are you uneducated as well? And then they say this. So ironic. They say, look and see for yourself, Nicodemus. This guy cannot be a prophet. Why? Because he's from Galilee. And look at, look at. The irony of all of this is that these supposed experts of the Bible don't know the Bible. Because for one, first of all, Jesus is from Galilee and is the prophet. But even beyond that, we know Jonah was from Galilee. Don't you know? Don't you know no prophet comes from Galilee, except for Jonah, and, and probably Nahum, and probably Hosea as well. It's nonsense. In their anger, they're actually demonstrating a real lack of knowledge and a great amount of arrogance here. These experts of the law are not actually experts of the law. They're experts of their own rules. They're experts of their own tradition, of their own needs, of their own pride. In their pride and hatred, we see now they are blinded to the truth. And so what happens? They miss Jesus. They miss him. So get this. Get this. Putting this all together now. Get this. Jesus, that day, he stands up in front of the crowd. Again, don't miss it. This is the Feast of Tabernacles. We've been talking about this for three weeks. The people are, are there to celebrate who God is. 
They are there to celebrate that when the Israelite people were desperate, thirsty, in the desert, in need of saving, God came to Moses and says to him this. Listen now. If you've fallen asleep or missed anything, you got to get this. Right? Here it is. Listen. This is worth your time. God says to Moses in Exodus chapter 17, verse 6. He says this. Behold, Moses, I will stand before you there on the rock at Horeb, and you shall strike the rock, and water shall come out of it, and the people will drink. God says, don't miss it, ready? God says, I'll be on the rock. And when I'm on the rock, strike the rock, hit it, and then you'll have water. You and the people, if you do that, will be saved. And by the way, that's exactly what Moses does. He strikes the rock, water miraculously flows from it, gushes out of it. The people are saved. They are nourished, satisfied, fulfilled. They do not die. And because of that, from that moment on, a common name for God in Israel was what? Rock. The rock. It's all over the Old Testament. The rock of Israel. God, our rock. The everlasting rock. The rock of our salvation. Moses hits a rock. Water comes out. But of course, they knew, they knew, the Israelite people knew, it was the true rock who really brought them water that day. They knew that. That's why they called God the rock. They didn't worship that rock, literally, the literal rock. They worshiped the God who is the rock. And now, hear this, follow me, so good. You ready? Now, Jesus stands up on that day that they're supposed to remember Moses striking the rock, and he says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus saying, I'm your source of water. He's saying, I'm your everlasting rock. He's saying, I'm your salvation. Jesus is the rock, which is why, listen, when Jesus hangs on the cross, when he breathes his last final breath, and when he dies, John tells us in chapter 19 that one of the Roman soldiers came over to him, over to Jesus, and does what? Oh, this is good. Ready? But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear. He strikes Jesus, and at once there came out blood and what? Water flowed out of Jesus. Water flows out of Jesus. And the Apostle Paul, or sorry, John, the Apostle John doesn't write that here for medical purposes, my friends. He doesn't. He doesn't do it. He writes that here to let us know that on that day, water once again came out of the rock. Jesus Christ who is our source of life. And by his blood that flowed out of him as well, we are set free. God, our rock, provided physical water for his people in the desert. He saved his people, amen. And now we see God, our rock, Jesus Christ, offers spiritual water, salvation, the Holy Spirit for his people now today. Jesus is the ultimate source of life. He is the fulfillment of all of Israel's hopes and longings. He is the water that they needed that day. But he's not just the water for Israel. He's a source of water for the whole world. Today, there is an invitation. 
Jesus has invited us to himself. He's invited us to drink, to experience joy, love, grace, peace, and so much more. So today, so today, let me ask you a simple question. What will you do with Jesus? How will you respond to this great invitation? If you're here today and you do not know him, let me encourage you to drink, believe, taste and see that he is good. And if you're here today and you do know him, let let me encourage you to just keep going back to the well of salvation, to just keep drinking again and again and again every day. Keep going to Jesus. Let his life flow in you. Let it flow from you. Know that you are blessed to be a blessing. Possible, possible because of the Holy Spirit. Impossible because Jesus Christ, our rock, was struck at the cross and pierced for our sins. In Jesus, the rock, we truly find life. So let's go to him. Let's trust him. And let's drink. Amen? Let me pray for you. We'll invite the praise team to come back up.